Hello and welcome to this episode of Agora Radio on Finding Future Friends for Global Britain. Together with my guests, we discuss the case of China today and develop ideas of how the UK achieves to strike the difficult balance between confrontation and cooperation in this future relationship with China. I'm Annalina, the co-head of Agora Oxford, and I'm very delighted to guide us through this episode in these interesting times. And I say interesting times because post-Brexit UK is really at a critical juncture in defining itself as a global Britain. And from the integrated review earlier this year, it becomes clear that the future relationship with China plays a central role in this government's vision of such a global Britain. But foreign policy is all about trade-offs. And on the one hand, Britain appears to want to benefit from bilateral trade, investment with China, and cooperation in fields such as climate change and biodiversity. At the same time, however, the Global Britain strategy presents China as a real systemic competitor, as the biggest state-based threat to the UK's economic security, and signals quite clearly that the UK does not hesitate to stand up for its values in case of, for example, human rights violations. And so we discussed today how Britain's diverse goals of maximizing cooperation while resisting an authoritarian power and standing up for its values can be achieved. This is a very complex question. And to answer this, we are joined today by, I would say, really the best two experts we could wish for. On the one hand, we have Rana Mitta, who is Professor for the History and Politics of China at Oxford University. Welcome, Rana. I'm absolutely delighted to have you here on the podcast. It's a huge pleasure to be here, Annalena. Thank you for having me. And on the other hand, I would like to welcome Charles Parton, a Senior Associate Fellow at Russi and former career diplomat in China on behalf of the UK and the European Union. Welcome, Charlie. What a great, great pleasure to have you in the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with, with you and, and Rana and Annalena. Now, to start with, um, in several reports, both of you, Rana and Charlie, you underlined the importance of a coherent diplomatic framework that outlines more concretely than the integrated review how the UK aims to strike the balance between cooperation and confrontation with China. Now, Rana, the UK does not have such a strategy for other important partners such as the US. Why is a coherent engagement strategy of particular importance in the case of China? Well, first of all, Anlina, could I say that actually, in a sense, this division between uh, cooperation and challenge, that may be sometimes a better word than confrontation. It can be confrontation, but it, you know, it is sometimes just a recognition that the values and directions are different. It's not just about China. You said we don't have it for the United States. Of course, some might argue that during the presidency of Donald Trump, in practice, even if not in open statement, the UK, the European Union, and various other actors did essentially have both a confrontation and cooperation strategy. It's just that for reasons uh, essentially of diplomacy, they couldn't express that openly. And therefore, I think it's worth noting that, you know, apart from the, the, the difference between the, the US and China on, on, on that front, that sometimes some of the calculations we make about China are similar in certain ways to wider decisions that we make, which are in the end about what our interests are. So I think the direct answer to your question is this. The United Kingdom 
has certain interests. It wants to keep its people safe. It wants to keep its people, make its people prosperous. It wants to preserve a whole variety of values, which people like me would call liberal values. Not everyone necessarily wants to use that term, but I think we know what we're talking about there, respect for human rights, freedom of press, academic freedom, you know, whatever that might, might be. And therefore, I think that when we're thinking about how we preserve these things for the people of Britain, who are in a sense at the, the core of the conversation we're having today, China presents a whole variety of challenges to those particular core interests of ours that relate to each other in a way that I think is probably more the case than it is for any other actor. The nearest comparison that people sometimes use in terms of actors who don't share those values is Russia. And you know we may end up doing some sort of comparison in our conversation with that. But in the end, Russia is both a state with less of a sort of global reach and less of a kind of overarching involvement in what you might call public and private life in, in Britain. I think we've all come to realize that in a whole variety of areas to do with Britain's interests, engaging with China in the wider sense of that world, that could be either trying to send our investment into China or investment from China coming into the UK, and that's something my friend Charlie's very expert on, so I'm gonna leave that to, to him, or in the less tangible, immensely important question of liberal values, for instance, in what circumstances do we welcome Chinese students to UK universities? And in what circumstances do we feel that we should be cautious about a Chinese presence in our universities? These are the sorts of questions that really only China of all the you know, major countries in the world offers us a set of choices that we have to think through. And I think if we're gonna come, you know, we're gonna cover a lot of things in this conversation, but I would say that if there's one thing that I'd like everyone to take away and you know, track me through the conversation and see if I, I, I stick to this, it's about the realization that we can make different judgments about where to call some of these issues, but without some depth of knowledge, without understanding of why China is so different from other global actors and also why China today is so different from what China was perhaps, 20 years ago, which old people like me remember, even if uh, young up and coming students like Alina wouldn't necessarily remember that. In doing that, understanding and having knowledge about China is the best starting point to make those uh, judgments. So in the end, part of what I want to say is a kind of plea for knowledge to answer that question. You heard, Charlie, the importance of knowledge from Rana. So far, though, the UK has not published such a concrete framework. Where do you see the main obstacle of it and what steps are needed to address this obstacle? Well, I, I like Ryan, I think it's very important that the UK publishes both a strategy and, and some detailed thinking on the policies that depend from that strategy. I mean, just to be fair, Brexit and COVID have, have somewhat taken up the bandwidth in government. Um, but I, you know, start, let's start with Rana's point about the lack of knowledge. I think that's particularly prevalent at the higher ranks of the, of the UK government. We've got some good young people coming through who do know uh, and spent time in China. Um, but I also think that there's relatively poor systemic, uh, sorry, systematic expo exploitation of, of what resources the government does have, both inside the government and perhaps the need to beef up its, its um, contacts with, with people like Rana, I mean, academics and, and, and think tankers. Uh, so uh, it's it's you know let's start with the, with with that need for knowledge, uh, which I would underline as just as Rana did. Um, but beyond that, I think the next thing is is the need for structures um, within the government. There is no real uh, coordination on on China. And if you look at what happened over Huawei, that was very evident when Mrs May, Mrs May and her government um, flipped from one side to, to the other, and 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 we had that. 
uh, you know, leak of, of the, uh, uh, at the top level of the cabinet office where clearly ministers were not aligned. So, you know, the one, one thing about a strategy is, is that A, it needs to be agreed upon and B, it needs the structures, not only to reach agreement, but implement them. So in a paper a while back uh, with a group of other academics, we, we you know, posited the need for beefing up the, the NSIG, that's the, the National Strategy Implementation Group. Of course, you can't have an implementation group of a strategy if you don't have a strategy, um, but that's, <laughs> that's beside the point. Um, so that would be you know, across government and give clear guidance, both the government and to business and, and, and to, to academia, civil society about where the UK uh, is. Um, and then, you know, as it were below that, I think we, we, the government needs to strengthen and set up particular bodies for particular challenges. So perhaps on the more negative side, we've been a lot of talk recently about um, the, the, the challenges of Chinese interference in, in our societies. Well, you know, the Australians very sensibly have set up uh, an office for countering foreign interference. Um, I think we need to do that too. So that's one of the structures. And if you look at another very problem, problem, which is how do we deal with China in terms of science technology cooperation, whether that's in universities or in companies. So, I mean, the Chinese may be buying our brains by buying companies or hiring them by getting scientists to do to do um, work for them at, at Oxford University or wherever um, and 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 for that you need a sort of sage-like body which can very quickly say to universities or, or to companies that area of technology fine we'd like cooperation with China as much as we can that's okay and another area which says no I'm sorry that is just too sensitive it's too closely connected with military or possible military uses or surveillance uses going against what Rana talked about in terms of our, our values, that um, we have to rule that out. So you, you do need that structure where companies and universities can very quickly get an answer and say, can we cooperate on that subject, that particular area of technology, with that, that particular institution, possibly? Um, and that's another area where I think we've got to get the structures in place. I would like to go a step further and imagine we address these obstacles and, and we write this aforementioned strategy for the UK government that includes these concrete steps and a new set of policies that aim to achieve this balance for global Britain. But Rana, recently there has been an increasing willingness of public opinion, it seems, to sacrifice an economic relationship to uphold British liberal values, which I think is reflected decisions of the UK government and parliament in relation to Hong Kong, the genocide clause, the Huawei ban and the aid cut, for example. So how far would you say can and should the UK go in standing up for its values to still be able to realize its goals of advancing trade and investment with China? So I think one of the ways that we could work smart on this rather than necessarily making them entirely oppositional to each other is realizing that some of the things in which the UK has its greatest advantage remember core of all this conversation should be about the UK's interests and where we can do best in the world and particularly in China so some of the things that we do best are things that actually simply wouldn't work if we didn't actually stick to those liberal values let me give you two examples because they're very important in terms of economics and export, uh, exports and investment. They're not just there as some sort of abstract, uh, you know, jewels in the liberal crown. So 
One is the higher education sector, which I mentioned already, and as a university teacher, obviously, I have a very you know, vested interest in, uh, in this. I think that making sure that we believe and make it clear that we, you know, as openly as possible, that we believe that the maintenance of a free, wide-ranging, rigorous, and in some ways often perhaps slightly awkward higher education sector in the UK, one that asks difficult questions to our own people, to other people from around the world. That's one of the things that I think makes the UK higher education system so attractive. The fact that its universities are relatively autonomous, they perhaps take you know, more government money than might be uh, comfortable in that sense. But you know, overall, I think it's fair to say that despite squalls and storms on the surface about what's happening in universities, uh, we still have a globally respected sector. One of the things that's really key it's immensely respected in China. Recent Ipsos Mori polling by the British Council, uh, I say recent middle of 2020, so you know within the pandemic period, um, did a set of surveys on what Chinese middle-class people thought of various Western countries. And the UK came second to France, and France I think was just at the top, but the UK was very high with I think an 81% favorability rating. And I will bet you that one of the reasons that the UK gets that rating is not because of our fantastic cuisine, which is one of the reasons that uh, the French possibly maybe get a bit of an advantage, but actually that we are seen as a place that educates the world. And that, you know, particularly as relations between the US and uh, China become a little bit sticky in various ways, the UK is seen as a place where you can get an education that actually means something and makes sense in the wider world. So for us in the UK, the challenge is to make it absolutely clear that we cannot, will not, and refuse to accept anything that may compromise the values that run our education system and uh, operate uh, you know, running, running through it, but at the same time making it clear that that means welcoming Chinese students as well as students from around the world. Now, of course, as Charlie just said quite rightly, and let me say it again, if we're talking about uh, certain areas of scientific research which are sensitive because of national security, those areas will probably have to be closed off. Um, and I have to say, I read just today, in fact, in, a, in, a, in the paper that um, this isn't just about, this isn't just something that happens to China. Brits in the US working on certain types of rocket technology aren't allowed to know everything that happens there because the US actually has really quite strong rules about American citizens only knowing about certain sensitive technologies. So we could even be tactful, we can say, well, it's you know, not just about China, it's, uh, it's about you know, anyone from uh, countries which, uh, don't, uh, which are not our own, if we want to do that. But the wider values question still uh, maintains itself. One other example, because it's one that I've seen so often in real life in China. The UK has one of the world's most respected media and creative media uh, sectors, I should say. Television production, film production, gaming, uh, you know, the uh, all uh, huge numbers of developments to do with essentially the emergence of a world that goes beyond broadcasting to essentially communications. And an awful lot of institutions in the UK are where some of China's bright young sparks get their uh, training on this. So when they're doing that, I very much hope in many cases I see that they are also learning about the values that mostly drive our media, the idea of free and fearless inquiry, the idea that essentially you have to be asking awkward questions to those in authority and power. Now, whether those things come back in full form and they're re-imported to China, sometimes I have my doubts. But the fact that that knowledge is there, it has been exposed and it might have longer term effects, which I think would be only good for, for China. Those are aspects of our liberal values, which I hope we will continue to keep exporting into China. But the only way we can do that is by continuing to make sure that within the bounds of safety, we continue to have quite extensive engagement with China's you know, younger generations who are coming to learn in the UK. And I, I just add to that, that 
inevitably, I mean, you know, it's a spectrum between values and let's say at the other end, a full and no, full trade on, on all aspects. Um, clearly, if you put 100% of, of weight on, on values, you're going to do very little trade. And if you put 100% on, on trade, your, your, your values will suffer. So it has to be a spectrum. And in judging where the needle it lies on that spectrum, very often you're going to have to come down to individual con um, events, individual consciences. It's, it's not easy to be prescriptive in, 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 in that sense. Yeah, let's surely let's let's go from that and have also look at another concrete example, maybe where the UK aims to cooperate with China, namely in the upcoming COP26 that is hosted by the UK. How far would you say can and should the UK go in standing up for its values, or how smart does it need to be to still reach a cooperative atmosphere in view of this COP26 that makes it possible to agree on the next steps necessary to tackle climate challenges? Well, I would always say, I mean, it's an extraordinarily important topic for, for very obvious reasons. And um, I, I think that we need to uh, put all our efforts into keeping this separate from all the other aspects of our relationships with China, which might be negative. Um, now, of course, the Chinese Communist Party loves to mix issues and, and, and say that in this sector, if you want some, some progress, then you have to give us um, ground in another sector. And I think that's um, something that must be grossly, greatly resisted when it comes to something as important as climate change. And um, I've been a little bit disappointed by some of the sort of comments you see in, say, some of the press, I'm thinking of a particular Times editorial, which, you know, talks about the need to be a bit careful about what we do and say with China because of, of the importance of, of climate change. But hold on a second, think of, think of it for a moment. Who is the biggest demander in terms of, of what of the consequences of climate change? By population, it's China. I mean, uh, you know, the, the effects on China with most of its population on, on the eastern seaboard of, of, a, of a large sea rise would be catastrophic, both economically and, and politically. And then you've got things like the exacerbation of drought from which China suffers very badly, the um, water shortages, or indeed the opposite at times, flooding. So, you know, China has a really big interest in, in uh, the success of climate change. And so I don't think that we need to, um, you know, worry that we will, if we oppose it in another sphere, let's say the values that this will affect. That's a bluff, and I think it should be called. The other thing I'd say about the whole climate change thing is that we should get the tone right. I mean, I don't think that the Chinese in any way or the Chinese Communist Party likes being lectured. It certainly doesn't. And it doesn't like being accused. Uh, and so I think you've definitely got to get the tone right. And also, let's have a little bit of humility here, because it's all very well saying, ah, oh, but China's the biggest polluter or whatever. Per capita, I don't think it is. I think that it's succeeded by the USA, Canada, Australia. Uh, I'm not sure about us. Um, and more also to the point, um, you know, we have over the last decades basically exported our pollution to China, which has been the factory of the world and, and, and repository for some fairly dirty industries from which we get products which, um, you know, have, have, have uh, cheered our lives up. So, um, Let's have a bit of humility. Let's get the tone right, but let's not be afraid of, um, you know, uh, still standing up for the values that Ron and I have talked about, um, and, and, and thinking, well, we've got to be careful there because because of the of, of the climate change debate. I don't think that's right. Could I just add on that? Actually, I think it's very notable that 
in the last few weeks, as we're, we're speaking, we're speaking <laughs> at the very beginning of, of May uh, at the moment, it's notable that the Chinese dialogues on climate change with other major Western powers have almost skirted all the other issues we've talked about. So, you know, rows about human rights or uh, trade wars, or all these sorts of issues. Even China itself, and I think for actually very good reason, has realized that there's so much importance attached to this particular issue that they also have to take it slightly outside out of court. So in a sense, the, the caution that we are suggesting, some people, have, some people have suggested the West needs to operate when talking about climate change, actually seems to be to some extent what Beijing is doing at the moment. Because I think as Charlie's indicating, they realize it's too big a prize to let go uh, as well. And, and politically, it's highly sensitive. And actually, it's a strange uh, um, example, climate change, because normally we talk of the Chinese Communist Party being a top-down sort of thing. And, and we hear in, in, in countries like the UK, a sort of bottom-up, the importance of civil society, etc. But actually, it's the other way around in climate change. In many ways, in, in, in the, our countries, it's been the government that has um, taken, taken a forward position uh, in, in China, actually, what the Communist Party is reacting to is in particular air pollution, although water and earth pollution, soil pollution are probably the more serious problems in the longer term. But air pollution is a highly political topic. There have been a lot of protests and a lot of unhappiness, and the Communist Party has to get that right. Well, if you get air pollution right, you'll go a long way towards helping the, 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 the climate change problems as well. So we're on the same, same sheet. We're just approaching it, as it were, from different ends of the spectrum and meeting in the middle. Yeah, highly political topic you mentioned, um, Charlie. And we discussed so far the trade of our values and cooperation. I would like to include another political aspect that is important in the relationship with China, namely the aspect of security risks. And trade with China always implies a certain risk of intellectual property capture or technological path dependency that might be problematic. Rana, in what markets would you say can the UK expand without making itself vulnerable to security risks? And what measures should the UK take domestically to protect, protect itself against these risks? So I have said in the, in the report you kindly mentioned, co-written with Sophia Gast on the British Foreign Policy uh, Group, that what the UK needs to do, I think it would have had to do it anyway, but I think the post-Brexit situation makes it particularly urgent, is to work out where it has the greatest advantages and can operate those advantages with the minimal vulnerability, which is quite a difficult balance to put forward. So let me give a couple of examples of what I mean by, uh, by that. Um, let's take something like legal services, where um, the UK actually is a global leader in all sorts of ways, uh, largely because essentially uh, to do arbitration, contract law and so forth, London is regarded as a place which is both you know, sort of neutral, rigorous, objective, you know, this may or may not be true, of course, they are true, broadly speaking, but it's certainly the perception of a very good reason that's been built up over, over centuries, you might say, about um, well, British law in general and English uh, common law in this particular, particular case. Hong Kong, of course, is one of the places where in one form it operates as well. I think it's very broadly speaking, probably true to say that trying to expand the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the, the kind of footprint of English legal services around the world is something that is worthwhile. It fits into the way in which global commerce is changing. 
And it has relatively low vulnerabilities because a large part of what makes it valuable actually is, is up here. Not me, I'm one of you I listen to it. But, you know, human capital. In other words, it's stuff that people learn. It's to do with their judgment. It is actually, I don't keep coming back to this, but actually it shows it's important. It's to do with values. You know, if you basically come from that particular type of legal environment, even if not a lawyer, you're obviously socialized into it. And it's something that, you know, it turns out the rest of the world actually rather, rather values. There are other areas of services which I think you know still have lots of possibilities, but frankly are more vulnerable. Banking is one area where the UK has you know, huge expertise, but of course banking involves probably more fixed cost infrastructure in a whole variety of ways and path dependency, as you suggest. Now there are already a lot of very big players in UK finance who are based in China, Hong Kong, and elsewhere, and therefore you know there's a sunk cost there that's not going to be removed. I think, again, there's, it's always worth remembering that although, you know, threats sometimes roll that, you know, if the UK doesn't do X, then these companies aren't going to be treated well. The value of many of those actors to China, both in terms of the finance they produce and secondly, in terms of basically being able to prove to the world that China will play fair on, on, on commerce, shouldn't be underestimated either. I know in the short term, it's perfectly possible for China, if it wants to, to close down every British business or American business on its territory tomorrow if it wanted to. But I think the chances of China attracting any further investment if they were to do that is going to be quite limited. And even now, you know, post-pandemic, Yes, China's economy is growing fast and largely because, let's give them credit, they have managed to actually, from all accounts, control the virus pretty successfully, certainly compared to a lot of other countries, including India, tragically, at the moment we're talking about. But nonetheless, its economy has taken a very significant hit. And in that context, it still remains important to show to, China, to the rest of the world that China can operate in a way that actually involves respecting international arbitration and contract law. So I think that's one of the areas where actually the UK, again, potentially, if it chooses to use it, has an advantage in terms of what it can sell to the world, including China, and also in some of those aspects, perhaps is less vulnerable than it might be if it were, say, having to hand over very valuable high-tech technology that has military uses, which obviously sits in a completely different sort of category from uh, legal information. But I think, if I may, may, may and also one, it goes back to the point that I that I made of, of about the need for the right sort of framework or structures. I mean, you know, to quote that off line from Robert Frost, "Good fences make good neighbours," and I think that um, you you need to set out the structures which enable both China and others to see where our, our our red lines are. And so I talked about you know the need for a sage type S and T science and technology committee. But another one would 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 also be on strengthening the CPNI, the the I also get what the C stands for, but the protection of national infrastructure, um, which is which is a, a, a government body that um, does what it says on the tin. Um, but but I think that it needs more more teeth. Uh, and, 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 and a higher role. So, and there are other areas where we've got to look at in terms of the Thousand Talents campaign that's got a lot of publicity in America where uh, academics have been um, moonlighting for China with serious sums of money, incidentally, while in receipt of, of funds for, um, uh, by, from the American government. And I'm sure that that goes on in the UK as well. So, you know, we need to, to, to to strengthen the, the the legal frameworks there and the and, and the behavioral frameworks there but could i i mean i'm totally agreeing with that but saying you know it, you ought to flip it around the other way which is why is the uk not doing more to create our own 
10,000 talents campaign. In other words, you know, why are, we had a lot of language in recent uh, months and years about how China, how Britain needs to be a science superpower, completely agree with that, you know, after all China already is one and Britain, I think, you know, has a lot of capacity for, uh, for that. We need to be engaging with the world. And yet at the moment, our policy seems to be saying one thing, but doing another in terms of what's actually put down in terms of, uh, of investment on the ground. None of us, I think, can ignore the fact that a large, you know, significant part of China's technological development, particularly in its early phases, involved, um, I think, uh, the, the, the euphemism I've come up with is uh, unattributed attribution of other people's intellectual property. But it's also the case that having spent, you know, I think 2.1% of uh, GDP on research and development year on year, and having actually developed a cadre, I think that's the right word, of, you know, really top level scientific researchers, a great deal of what China's doing in science now is being done through China's own efforts. Of course, we have to, you know, point out where that advantage is, is being gained in an unfair way, and also in areas where it may impact on our lives and values. But we also have to look at ourselves and say, this is something we can do as well. We have done it in the past. And if we really want to take this challenge seriously, then we need to be spending on our own talents, both human capital and frankly, the money that's involved in investing for the next five years, 10 years, 20 years to come. China is doing quite a lot of that. We are doing some, but we need to do more. In other words, um, reproducing AstraZeneca and the Oxford vaccine. Well, many, that's a good start. <laughs> many other areas, yeah. Right. This is a good start. And I would like to take another step forward from that. Um, so far we discussed the question of the what the goals the question of how is as important as the question of what and for every goal i think to achieve with regard to china there are tools that are important to apply and actors that the uk should incorporate in this strategy you already mentioned finding the right tone and understanding china now also cooperation is key um, we read a lot in the newspapers charlie who would you say are the top three like-minded countries the uk should work with as allies in addition to the US and the five eyes and why those three countries? Well, that's a tough one. And, and indeed requiring me to, to conduct triage and select only three is, is grossly unfair because I, I might- triage, Shelley. Well, I might, I, might, I might cheat and say, well, the EU, um, that's one. <laughs> of course, within the EU, one might want to, 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 to uh, break that down, but- um, I mean, clearly, clearly the, the, the US, and I, and I think actually three is, is too small because it's not just uh, um, Europe that we need to get closer with on, on China and, and the US, but, but the like-minded democracies and indeed beyond the like-minded democracies. I mean, um, you know, uh, Japan, India and South Korea are, are three other obvious people. So I've already gone way, way beyond your, your restriction of three. And, um, you know, the, the why, I think, is, well, because we share the holy trinity of, of uh, in many cases, the security interests, um, the prosperity interests, the, the economic system um, that, that has served, I think, the world well, including China, incidentally, which has benefited from, from the existing economic system and, and the value system. So, you know, that's that's the, the why, but but also in terms of resisting, I think, uh, what the Chinese Communist Party may be bringing to the party, which I don't think is in the long-term interests of the world. And I, I mean, I'm thinking here, of, of course, China should have a greater say in global governance. Um, but I think that 
its attempt to change the, the global governance in a way that suits authoritarians, uh, or you might even say totalitarians in, in, in China's case, is, is not helpful to, to our um, the, the world's long-term global well-being. And I do think that um, whereas China may well have been in, uh, in the past, was a developing country, uh, that its continued claim to that status needs to be reflected, needs to change, and, and, and we need, um, to, with our like-minded partners, to work with China to actually lay out a, a, a more level playing field for, for our um, economic interaction. So those are the main interests. And if I was to point to one thing where I think um, we need to work very closely in the immediate to medium term with like-minded, it's Taiwan, which I think is going to be the issue of the decade. Uh, and this is concerns the future of 24 million people who I think we would hold very strongly have the right to determine their own future. That's it requires a whole different podcast. Absolutely, I agree. Maybe the next one. Um, but Rana, not only like-minded countries, but also understanding China as such is important. I think uh, you mentioned, you both mentioned that a couple of times already in this podcast and in several reports. Now, Rana, what role does a better understanding of China play in achieving the goals of a balance? And in maybe what concrete positions in or advising the government should the UK have more China experts? So let me just be clear first, Annalena, what I mean by understanding China. I think Charlie, I hope, would, would share this. This is not the same thing as agreeing with China or basically taking everything that China has to say literally, which is you know, sometimes the impression that's given uh, by this, uh, this particular phrasing. I mean understanding in the sense of understanding. So if we think about countries that, you know, for Brits, I think feel you know, natural enough friends and allies and places that we know about, partly because of language, we think about why it is that we think we know those places, the United States, uh, Australia might be two examples um, of that. Uh, and also, I would still say, and very much hope so, you know, our uh, um, neighbours and friends in the European Union, so in France and Germany, um, elsewhere, language tends to perhaps be a bit more of a barrier for the monolingual Brits, but nonetheless, I think not an insurmountable one in that, uh, in that sense. Sometimes, of course, uh, we should just put a note of caution. In places which seem familiar because of language, we sometimes fail to understand you know, that they are actually different, uh, different countries, and that's true also of the US and Australia. But the point is that we're surrounded by these places one way or another in different ways. You know, We learn their languages in school, uh, we go on these places on holiday, we see their television programs, you know, we, take part, you know, we, we take part in website, uh, we visit websites, or we take part in social media conversations that involve people from those countries. So it's not just a question of, you know, sort of sitting down and you know, reading a book for an hour to find out kind of key points. It's about being almost embedded in the way in which that place thinks. Now, that is, let's not beat about the bush, harder to do for China. The number of people who are going to learn Mandarin, which is, you know, a fairly tough language, is going to be always quite limited. We only produce a few hundred uh, graduates in Chinese uh, from the UK each year. We need more, but it's never going to be a sort of mass production line. I mean, at least I can't see that being the case in the near future. And frankly, at the moment, as I'm sure you know, as a German in the UK, I mean, it's hard enough to get anyone to learn French or German or Russian, let alone um, Chinese. But for instance, it's perfectly possible to go on YouTube and see you know, all of the latest hit Chinese TV series. And there are plenty of English language websites that tell you what they are. 
uh, with subtitles, you know, the English subtitles. Uh, I think they're put out there, frankly, probably by the, um, the film uh, and censorship, uh, film and television censorship authorities so that Westerners will see them. Uh, but in fact, I don't know how many people really do the, the viewing numbers on YouTube always strike me as being quite small, but unlike Netflix, you don't have to pay a penny. It's, it's all available for free. I recommend Chilchan, uh, Autumn Cicada, which is um, a uh, fantastically um, sort of uh, hokey, but actually rather compelling story about uh, Chinese communist un underground spies in Hong Kong in the 1940s, who the implications, of course, is much more patriotic than today's Hong Kong, as at least according to the, the Chinese party. Um, in addition to that, you know, there are all sorts of other things. There are organizations in the UK that can tell you about doing business with China, up, you know, the ups and downs of how that might be. Uh, there are lots of guides out there that, you know, read the South China Morning Post, English language newspaper, which actually has excellent uh, connections in China and is, is able to publish, frankly, a lot of things that go on in China that the, in, in, you know, the domestic newspapers there uh, cannot do and long may, it, uh, long may it last. It doesn't take huge amounts of effort to find out about what's going on in China. And nobody can expect to know everything, but it, it, at the moment, the level really is, is, is quite low in terms of that sort of level of comfort of understanding. And in terms of your question about government, well, there are fortunately already programs uh, being put forward, or at least by sort of um, semi-official uh, groupings like the Great Britain China Center to try and educate people uh, involved in government on and how to think about China and how to engage with it. There are lots of, as Charlie was saying, there are lots of really good people, many of them actually really quite expert in China in the Foreign Office, in the Trade Department, in Defense. I think there just needs to be more work about getting them to talk to each other and to sort of swap experiences in certain sorts of ways. So maybe, you know, I don't know what goes on behind the scenes in Whitehall, but if there isn't a China coordinator, perhaps or the cabinet office or somewhere like that would be the place for it to be. That may be where there is the need for some sort of role, not, I suspect, a very kind of doctrinaire one, but one which just involves providing an opportunity for people to gather together and, you know, swap their impressions about what they think is, is, is going on. And, and if I could add to that, as someone who worked in, in the British government for so many years, I think the incentive structures need to be changed so that those with an expertise in China uh, have an incentive to stay in the field and use that expertise. Uh, hitherto, it's been very much the other way. I mean, you won't get promotion if you bury yourself for, from a large part of your career in a certain area, um, whether it's geographical or, or otherwise. You know, this, this cult of the generalist is perhaps needs to be changed to some degree. Yeah, you mentioned already, Charlie, you did work for the UK government. And the last question of this podcast goes to you as a diplomat in this round and concerns the role of diplomacy uh, in this whole relationship. When, when do you think, Charlie, should the UK apply megaphone instead of quiet diplomacy? Well, that's that's um, a very good question, and actually one I addressed that, that I addressed in my paper on the on UK strategy, um, because uh, I think it's 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 very important to um, not to bow to the accusation that the Chinese always put in. Well, you're you're just in, uh, involved in megaphone diplomacy, whatever incidentally a megaphone is these days of the internet, because um, actually it's an important question. How do you get? the message across. Uh, we have a disadvantage in the sense that we don't have access to Chinese uh, internet because they censor our, our accounts, including you know, our embassy accounts or whatever, uh, whereas they, they are able to use Twitter and, and, and do uh, and other platforms. On the other hand, we have advantage, I think, that where uh, our, our, our platforms and our whatever we put up, our messages are probably trusted rather more than the, the communist parties. Um, but 
I think there is a very big place for megaphone diplomacy when quiet diplomacy hasn't worked. I mean, I think it's always better to have a, a, a quiet word with the Chinese Communist Party and say, listen, you know, this is a red line of ours or, or this is a, an absolute um, no-no for us. And, and we will talk about it loudly uh, if if you go ahead and do that or, or, or whatever. Uh, and then having said that, we must do it. Uh, and so I think there's a, a greater role for it. And in a sense, it, it takes us back to the very start of this conversation, because um, if you've got a strategy, it's not just that you and your side need to know what it is, it's that the Chinese need to know what it is, uh, because good fences make good neighbours, to use that, that, that quotation again. And so um, we'll have a quiet word. This is our strategy. You know it. Um, maybe we don't need a quiet word, but you do know that if you go against it, we have no choice but to speak out loudly. And, and, the, and the party hates that because it tends to challenge the narrative that it's pushing, particularly with its own people. And thank you so, so much, both Rana and Charlie, for joining us today and your brilliant insight into the future relationship of the UK with China. A lot of ideas, and I think you pro provided us with a lot of food for thought and ideas that we will continue to discuss in Agora. Mil merci for listening and see or hear you in the next Agora radio episode on further challenges of the UK and foreign policy and possible solutions to them.